Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Normally, Dave, I start our podcast together by saying something kind of funny. I don't feel particularly funny today. Oh, I've been, I've been hiring for a new position, and I've been meeting it pers- people after people after people, and I just I'm sick of talking about myself. So, <laughs> but it's been an interesting process because I've been trying to find somebody who doesn't think like me, and somebody who isn't a replication of me, and something somebody who can help us at BusyWeb be different and be better. And so that's why today's guest is going to be so particularly helpful for me as well as somebody else. Uh, well, really anybody else. Our guest today is an expert in diversity and equity and inclusion in hiring in corporate America. She is most noted for her ability to foster major paradigm shifts, change behavior, and empowering individuals, teams, and community. She's a trainer, award-winning trainer, and she has extensive research on unconscious bias by the American Psychological Association. So amazing. Yeah, we've massively outkicked our coverage in terms of guests by having somebody today, which I am honored to call my friend, Cecilia Stanton Adams. Hi, Cecilia. Hi, Trigby. Hi, Dave. How are you? Wonderful. Great Thank to meet you. Thank you so much Thank for you. having me. Yeah. I want to talk first about, I, I, I read Dave your bio a little. Can you Let's talk about unconscious bias, because I think that's a fascinating subject to start with, and I want to learn more about that. Tell, tell the, our listeners, what do you mean, what is that? Oh, gosh, yes. So I had no clue what that was until I went to Lehigh University. I did a pre-doctoral fellowship there, which means you're doing research in the lab. And I got an opportunity to actually bring participants in and measure their reaction times when they're looking at certain pictures and paired with certain words. Mm. And what you can do with the right technology is you can measure in milliseconds how quickly people respond to certain stimuli. And the long story short is that within milliseconds, people categorize others based on race gender, age, and a whole host of other dimensions. And this is within milliseconds. So it's not even within our consciousness. We don't even realize it, but it's there because of all the years of socialization, right? All of the things that we hear from the community, from society, from news, all of that shapes what our, our brain is telling us is either safe or unsafe. Right. And so Mm -hmm. our reactions, our quick reactions are in response to what we learn. So, you know, like one of the things I hear, especially in New York, is like, you know, if someone who is white has a purse and they're walking down the street and then there's a black man approaching them, that they're, you know, more likely to kind of grab the purse or maybe like go to the other side of the street. That's an example of how that millisecond reaction time can impact someone's behavior. And in some cases, yeah, like if you're a female and walking down the street and it's dark and any male approaching could be dangerous, right? But also think about when you're walking down the hallway of your child's school 
and that same situation happens, there there isn't um, a threat. But those those same automatic reactions could still come up. So that was fascinating to me. And it really moved me away from this idea of people either get it or they don't, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's far more complicated than that. Is that relative to age? Because Dave and I are of the age where I think we are sort of the first Sesame Street generation. Yeah. And there were... Uh, when I was growing up watching Sesame Street, there were, I remember Gordon was on there, who was an African-American guy, and Emilio was, Emilio was there, and he just passed away recently. And mm-hmm. I didn't learn until later in life that, I, that those people were different. I just thought those were the people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's part of it, right? The younger we are, the less of those models we have built in us. So here's a really simple one, you know, um, one of the dimensions that we really kind of hardwire into folks from a very early age is gender, Mm -hmm. right? Think about it. Like before you were even born, you know, like you'll have people buying you pink if you're, if they know it's a girl or blue if it's a boy. And then when you start playing with toys, you know, not all genders get to play with dolls and trucks without sometimes getting that reaction from society. And it doesn't have to be just your parents. Sometimes your parents can work really hard to, you know, expose the child to all kinds of different activities, regardless of the gender stereotype. But then they're going to go out in the world and they're going to be reinforced by what society says, right? Like, oh, that's dumb. Why are you playing with that truck? You know, you're a girl. You should play with a doll. So slowly, again, we start building that that framework of thinking. It's almost like a a file cabinet, right? And when you see something for the first time, you create a file folder for it. And then everything that you learn subsequently about that, you put in that file folder, right? So Mm -hmm. now in the future, when I'm now looking at this thing, I'm pulling that file folder out and I'm opening it up and I'm saying, okay, what's in there? What's in there to help me know what this is? And, you know, for some things, we've definitely learned a lot of stereotypes. And part of our work is unlearning that. I just uh, watched an interview with a comedian whose name is Nikki Glazer. She's sort of the 21st oh, yeah. century Don Rickles. And they, <laughs> a- they, they asked her, are men funnier than women? And her answer really surprised me. And her answer was, well, kind of. And it's not that as a gender, men are funnier, but as kids, when little boys talk about farts and talk about their butts, it's it's laughed at and oh that's cute, oh that's funny. But when girls do it, no, no, you don't you don't talk about it that way. And that really affected me as somebody who's raising a little boy who thinks his butt is really funny, that I need to be looking at it a little differently. So is it fair to say that we all have biases? Yes. And actually, you just made me think of a really great example. So my daughter's 27 and she teaches me a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion just because of her generational difference. And I was talking to her about, you know, wanting to do this performance, but I really wanted to get in the gym and I wanted to train and I wanted to look a certain way. And she's like, mom, that's that's socialization. Like, why do you have to look a certain way? Right. Like, why could the way you look now be, you know, good enough. Right. And so we're kind of going back and forth and I'm like, yeah, like there's some things that are just hardwired in me that I've learned along the way that I couldn't even point to if I could, because it's 
so ingrained in the way that I think. But, you know, ever since we had that conversation, I've been thinking like, wow, how much does beauty factor in to whether I think I'm good enough or whether I can, you know, like pursue a specific task, you know, or or, um, opportunity. Those are the things that I think sometimes stand in our way um, of, of seeing our own potential and then seeing the potential in others. I know for me personally, I am very much not a small man. And so I make very careful choices about how I dress when I'm in front of potential clients. Like Dave makes fun of me because basically my entire professional wardrobe is varying colors of Sherbert. Like, But I'm doing that on purpose because, you know, black is an intimidating color, especially when there's a lot of it on a very large man coming at you. So I, I, it's such a fascinating enterprise, but I want to get into really the meat of why we have you here today, Cecilia, which is to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion. So as a philosophy, how has that come into sort of the cultural discussion for companies as something that they need to focus on? Well, I think there are a lot of situations that have come up that have come happened together and created this complex situation, right? So number one, our demographics are changing across the nation. And we know this and, and we see it far more, you know, like on the East Coast and on the West Coast, right? There's far more diversity in many different ways. And as a result, that's changed our client markets, right? So who we serve are, they're becoming different. And so for companies, they're realizing, wow, like we've always served this specific audience or this specific market, but now they're changing ethnically, religiously. Now there's many more people that identify across the gender spectrum. Mm-hmm. But if an organization can't speak to those markets, then what happens is they become irrelevant. Hmm. That is the driving business case, right? I mean, if you want to stay around, you have to get this. It's almost like 20 years ago, organizations saying, ah, this technology thing, (laughs) we're not getting into that. We know that they're mostly likely not around anymore. And I think that's the same thing with diversity, that that market is driving it. But also we have a talent shortage. So we've known now for over a decade, you know, the data has been telling us that we're going to have far more people retiring out of the workplace than we have coming in. Mm -hmm. And even if we try to find a way to really leverage all the untapped talent, like people coming out of prison, like people that are in retirement that maybe want to come back out, even if we really leverage all that diversity, we still are going to be in need, right? And we're also preparing people for jobs that are not even here yet. So, yeah. Uh, and I think the, it, what I found very interesting is, as a hirer, and as, as someone who's looking to build their organization, right? You know, the, the crazy thing about the past couple of years is those borders really have started to melt away. And so what, what's initially, I think, super interesting or, or what, what we feel is the benefit of being together in cities, you know, um, we're based in Minneapolis, you're on the East Coast, um, there's plenty of diversity where we are, 
But now we're starting to bridge out into places where maybe there isn't as much diversity. And so it's it's kind of a, a careful and interesting dance because yes. now there's no reason why someone that's in a very rural location who might have very different outlooks and or their entire community looks very different than our community would want to interact and to come work with us. And so as you're looking at DEI, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion, how can you kind of plan for that? And is it, is it just front loading and, and having a more open conversation or what, what's the, how do you set that up for your audience, especially as you're looking to hire? Yeah. And I I think that has to happen internally and especially at the highest levels of the organization, Mm. right? If those executive leaders or those business owners aren't driving this conversation, it's going to get really easy to kind of push it to the wayside. So, you know, to me, I like to think about, let's look at diversity in the broadest sense because Mm -hmm. we are surrounded by diversity. And oftentimes, even with the people that we currently work with, we see them in a certain frame, right? And, and we may not even see all of the great diversity that they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So it really starts with yourself, right? And the folks that you work with. What are some parts of my identity that maybe I've kind of pushed aside or haven't really you know, delved into? When I can understand those different perspectives within me, then I have a much better appreciation of it within you. So I'll give you a real simple example. So my wife and I started our business and I'm an extrovert and she's an introvert. And so mm-hmm. she likes to say that I'm a microwave and she's a crock pot. Mm-hmm. And it's so <laughs> true. I mean, like if you want popcorn, I'm popping ideas out, cheddar, no cheddar. You know, like that's how I think. I'm hearing my ideas at the same time you are. Whereas for an introvert, you know, she needs to process and really like think it through and maybe write things out before she's going to give her ideas. And, you know, for me, that would be frustrating. I'd be like, come in, like, don't you have something to share? And it took time to really like appreciate that. No, it's just a different way of processing. And that the end result is that when we can bring both of those polarities of, you know, of energy together, we Mm -hmm. can come up with really innovative and creative solutions and ideas. So I want to take a step back because I think that's a really illustrative point that mm-hmm. when we're talking about diversity. And I want to have some clarification of terms because I think the concept of DEI is sort of a, a massive grouping of a lot of a massive spectrum of things. So when we're talking about diversity, that's not just race and it's not just gender. What You're absolutely right? What what is it? Can you help define what the whole spectrum is? Sure. So I would start, you know, right away at the core of who we are, personality, right? So I just gave an example of like introverted, extroverted, big picture thinker, you know, more detail oriented. Those personalities are our first introduction to diversity. So you probably think of your family members or people you grew up with. There are probably some personalities that you clashed with, but you figured out how to deal with it, right? Or you put up barriers so that you didn't have to deal with it. So I always like to say like, that's, we already know how to do this. We just have to lean into areas where we're already doing this work. The secondary dimensions um, or primary dimensions, those are are things about ourselves that we can't change. 
right? So like the way we look, you know, our age, our gender, our sexual orientation, those are things that really form our identity, but it also has a big impact in that it shapes the way other people see you, right? Because they, whatever stereotypes come with those dimensions, then get kind of projected onto you. The secondary are those things that can change over time, like geographic location, Mm -hmm. like being from New York and then coming to the Midwest, very different styles of communication, right? right? (laughs) So, you know, when we think about diversity in that way, we start to recognize like, oh, yeah, like we're far more complex than we give ourselves credit for. And we're intersectional beings. So I can't experience the world as just a female or just a Black Latina. I experience the world with all of those things. So when I can do that for myself, I can better do that for you all, right? And then Trigby, I'm not going to just look at you and see you as just a white male, right? And mm-hmm. there's so many other layers to you. And that's what I'm, also, I'm also quite handsome. <laughs> that, right. That too. Yeah. So. Uh, and this, uh, I know very little about equity and I live with a school counselor, so I, I hear it used all the time. So can you help define what is equity and what all that entails in the workforce? Yes. So, you know, we, we're all familiar with the, the term equality and mm-hmm. equality really first refers to the idea that we, we're going to get something to help us be able to bridge a gap that we're all going to get the exact same thing. Right. And so we know that especially because of history, we all don't maybe need the same thing, right? Some of us- Well, that sounds like communism, Cecilia. (laughs) Well, at least socialism. Right, right, right. But it really is meeting people where they're at, right? Giving Mm -hmm. people what they need. And here's a great example of that. You know, I remember before there was a lot of people like using mobile, there would be a lot of companies that put their applications- completely online, completely digital. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they began to miss a whole cross-section of talent of people that didn't necessarily have access to their own personal mobile phone, mm-hmm. right? Or, or have a computer in their home. The other group that we're trying to tap into now are people over 65, right? Um, if they've retired, maybe they're trying to like uh, attract more people that want to come back into the workforce And that might be a miss if you're only going on, um, say, Instagram to Mm -hmm. publicize your job openings, right? Or to build that community. It really says, like, we we have to think differently and broadly. One size does not fit all. And so that's where equity comes in, right? I I suppose with that, it's it's not even just uh, different kinds of people, but different ways of interacting with the world, right? So I'm teaching a class for Google. And one of the biggest things that we talk about in that one is what people that can't see need from like blog or from like computer readers. So having alt text and images, and I'm getting a little nerdy on that stuff, of course. But, you know, how can you accommodate and get the benefit of these brilliant people that have vastly different interactive worlds than you I mean, it's just even as far down as, you know, people that are colorblind can't see a red or a green button on your website. So how can you plan for that? And how can you relay information? Or how do you work with folks that might be hard of hearing? And so yes. phones are definitely a huge help for that. But is 
is there a broad spectrum or as you sit down with a company for the very first time, there's like, well, we need DEI and we, we understand that it's a big thing. Is there a conversation that you have to kind of level set or how does yeah. that first conversation go? Yeah. So the first conversation is usually about the business case, mm-hmm. right? So, so what is your driving imperative for doing this work? And if the executive team, like I said, if they can't articulate that really well, it doesn't matter how many diversity councils or ER employee resource groups you create, you're going to have that tension. So at the top level, what I like to do is talk about what diversity means at a broad sense, right? Mm-hmm. So they can kind of move away from that box that we want right. to think in and really think a lot more broadly about how can diverse thinking actually benefit the company? In what ways could it really drive a competitive advantage? And who's uh, isn't open for competitive advantage, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, if your organization isn't doing it, others will. So, you know, if they can articulate that well, what happens is they can now send that message out to the rest of their organization. When you can have an in-sync message about this work, you're going to be better able to operationalize what that looks like across departments. And we have lots of different tools for that, but that primary conversation is so important. How does a company start to realize that they need to look at they need to expand their viewpoint and and what are what are some indicators that as somebody who's listening to this who might be frustrated and finding finding new people and finding a a a wider spectrum of of people what are those people frustrated with right now that they can start that they can be led to this answer yeah in terms of the the folks that are running the businesses and executive yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think um, number one is what does the data show you, right? So if you're looking at your employees and your customers, right, what are the demographics look like? Are you reaching folks in every demographic? Where are their blind spots, right? When you look at your employees internally, um, especially those that have been there for a long time, what does that look like in terms of diversity? Are you starting to maybe promote from within folks that think similarly, right? Have you recruited all from the same industry, right? Thinking broadly like that really helps you to say, oh, well, yeah, actually we do need someone that has a perspective on working with multicultural communities, right? Because we don't have anyone on the team that has that. Now, where I think folks get tripped up is you know, they think, oh, well, that means that just because you're a Black person or a person of color, you're going to get that job. But that's not what I said. What I said is, do you have experience building relationships with multicultural communities? That could be someone of any race, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have to think about what is the value that people are bringing to the table in terms of perspectives, especially. Yeah. We we skipped over the last part of DEI, which is inclusion. So can you to help define what is that and what does it mean and how are people affected by that? Yes. Well, you know, just in, ca- in comparison, if diversity is about just all the ways that we're different and the same, right? And equity is about giving people what they need to have access. Then inclusion is all about what happens when you have all these people, right? How do you create an environment where they can feel like they bring they can bring their best to the table? Because if you've done all this work, 
you hate to have a revolving door. And that's what many organizations are dealing with because they go right to recruitment instead of really understanding, is my environment actually going to cultivate these folks? Are they going to thrive Mm -hmm. when they come into the organization? Mm -hmm. So if you're an all-female organization and you bring a male on board, you can't just say, well, hey, you know, gender doesn't matter. I mean, we're just going to continue to do everything the same. Yet there may be some some places where that's going to be different. Like, for example, maybe the the guy continues to get called every time there's something to get heavy to get picked up. Right. So there's research that kind of shows that happens to me. (laughs) There you go. And so that's a huge blind spot. Like if you live and breathe that culture, you don't even realize that. And so you have to be open to where those blind spots might be and willing to find solutions so that everyone can come to the table and bring their best. I think the natural inclination as somebody might who needs to do this and just listen to what you had to say would be that that sounds exhausting and I don't want to do any of that. So what it, it, it's harder and it's different, but what are the benefits of having alternative viewpoints? And you, t- you talked a little bit about comp- competitive advantage. What does that mm-hmm. really look like as, as an advantage for a, a company? Yeah. Well, first of all, talent, we know that it's, it's uh, in demand and top talent is in demand. And, but there's only but so much of top talent to go around. So number one, if you want to be that organization or that company that can bring those great thinkers, those folks that are going to bring those different perspectives to the table, you have to be attractive, right? And we already know from the data that younger generations, they want to see organizations that are actually delivering on their values, right? Differently than maybe Mm -hmm. baby boomers and Gen Xers might be used to, right? So it means that in order to to get that talent to come in, we've got to give them what they want, right? Or create that place that they really want to work in. There's data that also shows that when you have diversity of race and gender on your board, that you're going to see on average about 30% increase in profit. You're also going to be a lot better able to move into emerging markets. I mean, the data is fantastic and it's mm-hmm. been coming out the past few years because you know folks have been looking at this over time. And the data really shows if you want to be competitive and you want to stay in the game, you got to look at this, right? And it's to me, it's more than just a compelling, like, this is the right thing to do. To me, it's also like, if you want to be good at business, this is a business strategy. I love that. So mm-hmm. once companies get through that first, through the looking glass and they realize, okay, this is something I need to consider, how do they go about changing the game? Yeah. So first is getting educated, right? Like, I always say, start with a Google. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. so much out there on Google that you can find and that you can learn. There's people teaching on different social media platforms. So each individual should really take advantage of trying to learn as much as they can. So if we take it back to technology, you know, if we think about back in the day, I don't know about you all, but I know I took typewriting um, in oh, high yeah. school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you see the technology that we have to live and breathe all day today, right? I mean, what happened between then and now? Like, I didn't just sit back and go, oh, well, you know, I'll just catch up with it when I can. Like, I had to do a lot to upskill myself 
or else I wouldn't be really competitive. And so that's what we have to do with diversity is we really have to learn a lot, learn about other cultures, especially of those that you want to build partnerships with, right? Because people will appreciate that you've done your homework and you want to get to know folks more, but don't stop at Google, right? You got to actually bring it to real life experiences and having the connections um, like Trigby. I mean, we met because, you know, I needed help in my business and you were doing mentorship for small business owners. And like you shared knowledge with me that I would never have had. I'm a first generation college student. You know, my parents are, are immigrants, so they don't know a lot of this stuff. So, you know, we need to have more of that, those crossover interactions um, so that we can start to learn those unwritten rules. In an environment that we live in right now, as we're recording this, it's sort of the end of 2022 in the holiday season, and it seems like the country is basically splitting in two, and in people who agree with me and then people who don't agree with me. So how, how, can, how can we turn that down a little yeah. by looking and listening to the other people? Yeah, I think... For be- to begin with, we have to accept that not everybody's going to believe exactly the same thing that we believe, right? And, and sometimes it's a matter of we may want to get to the same end goal, but we have different ways of doing it, right? So I think we have to learn how to make space for people to believe more than one thing. And until we can figure that out, we're going to struggle because really, are we ever going to get to a place where everybody agrees? No. And the more diverse we are as a country, you know, the continue those polarities we're going to be. But we may have to think differently in our society about how do we make space for both to exist, right? How do we live in that polarity space where we're not killing each other, but we're actually utilizing it to get to the other side, to create solutions and innovations that really help all of us. It feels like maybe that's one place where business could actually help because as business owners, especially small business, we can pivot and we can just open our doors. We can connect. We can encourage more than one opinion, more than one thing. I mean, certainly if you, whether you're uh, on CNBC or Fox News on a daily basis, as far as what your media diet is, that's very polarizing and realizing that they make their money by making people angry. And exactly. so as business owners, it, it'd be great if more folks were very thoughtful about, you know what, we're all in this together. And not only is it a smart like money move or profit move for me to have better people that have different opinions and different insights, but it's also just smart to have more people and to have a bigger pool to pull from. That's right. So it, it feels it feels like you know this the DEI is is not just a competitive advantage, but maybe it's a social advantage. Yeah. I love that. I heard an interesting turn of phrase for that sort of Fox Newsification that that it's it's called angertainment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. So if I understand that correctly, what we're trying to say is that two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. yeah. I can hire somebody who doesn't believe what I believe religiously, politically, but 
they can help my business grow in ways that I might not understand unless I give them the chance to do that. Yeah. And I think what's going to drive it are values, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the values of the organization, why do we create those first? Because they are the foundation. They should serve as the filter by which we're getting to the end product, right? And so when I'm interviewing someone, I want to understand whether their values are aligned how you got them could look completely different, right? Like having a really strong work ethic, you could be born and raised in rural Kansas or the middle of New York City and have a strong work ethic, right? And so that's where we have to really go back to what do we value, what's important to us in terms of what people are going to bring to the table? What do you want that customer experience to be like? And then you identify those folks and you don't get dissuaded by the things like, oh, I can't pronounce their name. Oh, I'm not going to call them back. Little things like that can Mm -hmm. kind of stop you from getting the exact right person you need for that role. Maybe that's why people aren't calling me back because they're afraid (laughs) of mispronouncing my name. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I, I think... One of the things that I've experienced being in selling for as long as I have and I, I, is that there's a big distinction in business where people either want to f- be right or they want to be successful. <laughs> yeah. And being right makes you lonely. Yes. But you're right. Thinking about things differently can get you to be more successful in ways that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. And certainly diversity, equity, and inclusion is a a great first step. So I'm sorry, I talked over you a little. No, I was going to say, at one point, it was right to believe that the world was flat. Right. (laughs) So we just got to catch up with the world. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about competing viewpoints, I think there is still a cap on these kind of things, right? So. We, as we're recording this, we're living through the era of Kyrie Irving. We're living through Kanye West, who's going, I don't know in, in which way. There, there, there's, there's, a, there's an appreciation for tolerance, and then there's, the, but that, there is a limit to that, right? Yes. Like, for sure. Being open to new things doesn't mean that you should, you should violate your own personal integrity or your own value system. That's exactly right, right? And that's where the values really should should drive your actions. And you have to stay aligned with it no matter what, you know? Um, like we can't say, oh, because I really like Will Smith, it's okay that he got, that he slapped Chris Rock, you know? <laughs> like you gotta kind of figure out like what's, what's where the ethics lie, yeah. right? And, um, right? And how do we create safety for that, t- for diverse viewpoints to exist. And when you start to go beyond a line where people no longer feel safe, to me, that's where that's where you draw the line. And I, and I hate that term because safety is so misconstrued as, as, as feeling like you're somehow in danger. It's really not a question of danger as much as somebody just needs to be heard. Correct. Exactly. And, and people make fun. Oh, you know, everybody needs a safe space. Everybody needs a snowflake. No, they don't. They need to be heard and they need to be valued as an individual. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's and right. It's, it's, it's almost more like there's a pursuit of, as Trigvi said before, you know, there's a pursuit of being right 
or a pursuit of, you know, you know, my, my safety and my feelings, but probably more importantly, there's pursuit of the actual truth and, or pursuit of the common goal yeah. of an organization for sure. Right. So, you know, our goal is to feed all of the families that show up to work every day of the people that show up to work every day. So there's a lot that goes into that and that we can enjoy from multiple perspectives and you know who cares what gender people identify as, what color they are, what culture they're from, what beliefs they have, as long as we're all working toward the same thing in order to accomplish what our core, what our core goal is. That's exactly I think it's important as we set up that goal, however, that the goal is worthy of moving forward, right? So if, if we just all get together and say, you know what, um, I'm Dave, I'm the president of BusyWeb. I really want a new car next year. So if we could all work a little harder, um, right. I don't care who we hire, but I just need more money. That's not something that's going to get people excited, right? That's right. So I'm assuming when you have conversations with companies that are looking for help with DEI, that the goal is probably a little bit more altruistic than just cash, right? Correct. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things that I like to do early on is talk to them about different approaches to DEI that mm-hmm. are value driven. For example, one approach is social justice. Yes. And after the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. that's, you know, a lot of people were kind of awakened to this work through social justice. So that's the only frame that they have. And so for some employees, when their company said, hey, we're doing DEI work and they weren't showing up at protests or, you know, doing mm-hmm. specific things to, to move legislation, that would be, you know, contention. That would be conflict. Right. So that's one approach. The next approach is um, building competence. So this is really focusing mm-hmm. on individuals being able to upskill in their cultural competence, understanding different perspectives, understanding how to build trust across communities. A third is honoring dignity. So I worked with a hospice organization and their values were all about honoring dignity. So you can imagine the diversity work that they did looked different than building Mm -hmm. competence because they had to get deep. Like they had to understand what people's idea of death is. You know, how do they, how does their culture identify grief? What does it look like? The fourth one is developing the organization. So that's when you're focused on the systems and practices. And then the last is being in compliance, right? And so like I think about one organization who employed people that had a lot, you know, had a lot of different um, languages spoken. And one of the challenges is that, you know, a lot of them were like driving heavy machinery and safety was of utmost importance. So they needed to make sure that everybody, no matter what language you spoke, understood the same thing about safety, mm-hmm. right? So that's where compliance was actually a good thing for them to work towards. Yeah. So it gives people a lot more choices to align their DEI work with the values of the organization and then be aligned in their messaging to the employees and to the community so that, you know, you're not standing back later like, oh, you mm-hmm. know, we, we jumped into this and it's really not aligned with who we are. Right. Uh, we are seeing a lot more companies that are stepping up and being public and being very vocal about what they believe. You know, with 
the whole the whole Twitter debacle again. We're we're at the end of 2022 here. There's a lot of companies that are pulling back from advertising because they don't believe in some of the things that the owner is doing. Right. Yeah. So being public about that and and making a stand is part of supporting the communities that you serve. That's right. That's exactly right. Your your work at uh, at the Diversity Institute is changing a little from being just a consultant for large companies into actually starting to train people on how to get into diversity, inclusion, and equity as a field. Yes. Yes. So unpack that a little. What, how are you, how are you helping to create a new career path for this? Awesome. Well, I'm so excited about this. You know, I started my career 20 years ago and really like the jobs that I took in the early part of my career, they were all new positions. So I was often stepping into a role that had never existed before. And so, you know, I was oftentimes by myself trying to figure out like, okay, what are the models that are going to work? Like, how do I influence without authority? And what I know now is that there are people just like me all across the country scratching their heads and like testing things out. But we hadn't yet had the, the connection, that broader network and community where we could learn from one another. So, you know, it was very common to just feel like you're the only one. And that's, that's really hard. Even when you do find success, sometimes it's really hard won. Like you've had to step in a lot of landmines. And so after George Floyd, one of the things that happened was that we saw a 50% increase in DEI roles. So organizations began creating DEI roles specifically to start looking at all of the challenges that we've talked about in the show today. And the challenge with that is that many folks, number one, there isn't you know, a lot of good education that will train a practitioner, right? That's still being developed. And there's also not a whole lot of community support, right? So you have people that are passionate about diversity stepping into these roles and then being asked to basically do make a miracle happen, right? Which is like, I get rid of all of these barriers that are, that are in place. The typical the average turnover for DEI practitioners is 18 months. That's how long a person stays in the role. And many times they're burnt out or mm-hmm. they're just, they know that they've taken the organization as far as the organization's willing to go. And the, the really challenging thing with that is that once you get that, um, a person leaves, it kind of dies down, right? The diversity work that was happening. Then when you want to look at it again and bring someone in, you have to build that momentum all over again. Mm-hmm. But now your employees distrust you because they've seen it not work, right? So it, it almost mm-hmm. starts to, it becomes more and more complex the longer you wait or the less you um, are consistent with your work. So, this is kind of, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with that said, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to create a program that was really going to help practitioners hit the ground running right? To give them those, those hard won um, lessons and strategies and best practices that I've gleaned over the years. And so in 2022, I've been piloting this class and it's had a lot of great success and I'm excited to launch it again, January 12th. And the whole idea is to really build, build standards around um, what we're teaching our practitioners so that they can be successful in these roles. And if somebody's interested in learning more about that, where, where can they find it? 
they can go to www.stantonadams.com. And I'd love to hear from folks too. If, if you've got questions on DEI, I love talking. And there's not a question that I haven't heard. So don't even feel shy. <laughs> is there an end game for this kind of work? Or is this something that is just always going to be more and more prevalent? I liken it to finance. You know, there was a time when organizations didn't have CFOs. Mm-hmm. And then they realized, hmm, we'd probably do a lot better. We'd be more strategic if we had someone that was overseeing that. And did it go, did like everybody's individual responsibility go away? No. In fact, we want to make sure we're employing people that are going to be um, good with their budgets, right? And manage them well. But it doesn't get rid of that CFO right? That CFO is still needed to be there because they're the subject matter expert. They're the ones that are going to bring that strategic thinking that are going to have their eye on what are some of the legal risks that might come up and have ways to to really build that competitive advantage. So I actually see um, more organizations building in the diversity officer role. And my also my secret is I think that diversity officers are really in line to be CEOs. Usually diversity diversity people are the ones that have to understand every single department. Right. Then they have to learn the data that goes with everyone. Right. Then they have to learn how to influence everyone so that everybody could get on the same page. Well, hey, you know, if we actually were more strategic in their development and said, yeah, let's start, you know, creating this pathway to the CEO um, or to the C-suite. I think that would be amazing. And I think these are the candidates that are untapped. Wow. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, especially when you look at the the different ways that you need to pull everything together. I mean, what better role to synthesize the entirety, the entirety of the need of the organization? And that also leads right into leadership. Exactly. And to be yeah. able to in, individually influence all a whole spectrum of people yes. to, right. to think differently. Exactly. And how powerful if the diversity and inclusion expert is in charge of the organization going forward. I mean, that sends a powerful message. I love yes. that. Yes. Wow. Exactly. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface and we've barely got into this. I feel like we could go on for another four hours. Uh, <laughs> but every time I talk to you, Cecilia, I always feel like I get a little bit smarter and a little bit better. So once again, if anybody has any interest in this, uh, where can they find you if they want to learn more about this, if they want to have you come in to help consult, if they want to take your class, how do they, I know we just said it, let's do it again. Cause I think it's it, the, the world needs more of people like you. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, folks can come see me at uh, www.stantonadams.com. And you can always find me on LinkedIn, Cecilia Stanton Adams. Come check me out, see what I'm up to. I always like to post the things that I'm, I'm doing and the projects that I'm working on. So let, love to hear from you. Right. And if I'm if I'm seeing this right, the, the company in LinkedIn if you go, it's the Diversity Institute, correct? Yes, the Diversity Institute powered by St. Adams. You're exactly right. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Cecilia. And uh, hopefully the, the world will get a little quieter and uh, listen to you a little bit more in the coming yes. year. Thank you so much, Trigby and Dave. It was great being here. 